Thanks for listening to the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I taught at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you'll hear questions being asked by the class. I do my best to repeat them so that you won't be lost as you listen. You can find more of my podcasts at my website, jrforesteros.com, and at storyman.us, where I co-host with Matt Michelados and Clay Morgan. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the class. ...about sin. So this is where everything quits being fun and games and takes a turn for the serious. Uh, but I wanted to do a little bit of review with you as we're getting started. And actually, there's one other thing I want to do. Uh, first of all, next week is the first week of a few that I will either be gone or that we will not be having a, a theological class. But don't miss next week because we have a kind of a, this is uh, some of you probably heard a little bit about this. Others of you will be hearing about it for the first time tonight. And I'm not going to go into a lot of details because that's what Sunday's for. But we are actually as a church getting ready to plan a satellite campus uh, over in Alpha, which is just right down the street a little bit. And uh, we have a building there, and Sunday is when we're making the big announcement about it and talking about some more of the details and stuff like that. But uh, we, as the staff and the church leadership team, wanted to begin taking people over to just kind of see the building and hear more about the vision of it. And so we figured that since my class, since I'm going to be gone next week, I'm going to be at Mount Vernon doing the fall revival, uh, Keevan volunteered to bus all of you over there and show you, give you a tour of the building and talk a little bit about what the church is going to be doing over there and how you can be involved with it or not. I mean, just kind of give you a a tour of it. So uh, that'll be next week during this time. Like if you just show up like regular, we may have some pizza or something like that here anyway, just kind of make it fun. And then you'll actually have a chance to just go over. You won't have to drive yourself. Of course you can if you want, since you're all adults, you can do what you want. Um, But like it's, it's, it can be a very easy to kind of show up and go and come back kind of a thing. So uh, I would strongly encourage you, uh, again, you're going to be hearing a lot about this on Sunday, so it'll make more sense after Sunday. Uh, But next week, since you already have this time blocked out to be here, uh, I would really strongly encourage you to take a chance to go over there and kind of hear some of what's going to be going on, because it's really, it's it's a really exciting thing. I wish we had more time to talk about it tonight, but we, of all nights, do not uh, tonight. So anyway, that's next week. I just wanted to make you aware of that. All right, here we go on the review. So we started out talking about the idea that everyone is a theologian, that we all talk about God and think about God. And that's what theology means. The word theology just means words about God and then the study, you know, study of God. And so anyone who talks about God or thinks about God is doing theology. So the question isn't whether or not we can do theology, which I think that word creates a barrier for a lot of people. The question is, are we doing it well? And how would we even know whether we were doing theology well or not? And so we answered that the first week by saying in our particular theological tradition, the Wesleyan holiness tradition, we use a tool called the Wesleyan quadrilateral to guide us in doing good theology. So we have four sources of what counts as good theology. The first and most important is scripture, the Bible, right? This is what guides us. Uh, then we have reason, which is our own ability to you know, figure things out and make things make sense. We have the tradition of the church, the people who have been following Jesus for 2,000 years, trying to figure it out and figure out things that work and things that don't and passing those on to the next. So that's, again, not just our own particular Wesleyan holiness theological tradition, but the larger Wesleyan tradition, the larger Protestant tradition, and then beyond that, the larger Christian tradition in general. So we have, we have lots and lots of resources to draw from. And you'll be seeing some more of that tonight as we go through the doctrines of doctrine of sin and everything involved in that. Uh, and then the last one is, is experience. 
uh, how we experience God acting in our lives and acting in the world. All four of these things give us a framework for how we do theology and, and for us to be, again to be able to understand if we're doing theology well or not. Uh, so then we, we went into talking about God, started in the beginning, within the beginning God, before we got to talking about created the heavens and the earth. And so the second week, we talked all about what it means to say that God is Trinity, what it means to say that God is, is a single deity, a single being who also exists as three persons who are one. And we talked about how the word Trinity and the concept of the Trinity even kind of stretches our brains and it exists sort of at the bounds of of language, but it provides us a safe way to talk about a God who is both one and three, a God who is fundamentally, most basically self-giving love, and why that matters so much. And so that actually got us into the doctrine of creation and humanity that we began to talk about last week, because uh, God creates not out of a necessity, not out of a, a desire for needing creation, but out of pure joy of giving and, and, and an a, a overabundance of divine love. Uh, so the, the metaphor that we use is that the only thing better than giving someone you love a present is giving them two presents, right? Because uh, that's just better. And uh, giving, when you, when, you, when you really understand the joy of giving, uh, giving more is even better. And so we, we talked about that as sort of a, a rationale in the scriptures for why God creates. Um, and so then we kind of closed last week with talking about humanity and the idea that we are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of a God who is fundamentally a giver and is fundamentally a lover. And so what does it mean that we are created in this image? And part of that is that we're created for community, that we need other people, that we are not good on our own. And so what I want to do by way of getting into the doctrine of sin this week is start there. And I want to go to Genesis 2. Uh, we're reading a lot of scripture this week, so if you have a Bible, you can follow along in there. I've, uh, after we get past this introductory piece, I've printed most of what we're going to be reading in the, the notes, so you can also follow along that way as well. Uh, but I wanted, to t- I wanted to go through very briefly and quickly a unique uh, picture of humanity that Genesis 2 gives. It's a really, uh, it's a really first of all, it's just really cool. It's a really neat way to set up the framework that we're going to be talking about, but it's also... It's also uh, it's also really important for everything we're going to be doing after this. Uh, and then I also wanted to make one proviso as reading started tonight. I said this last week, but I'm going to say it every week. We're going through a lot of information tonight, and the purpose of this is not for me to finish my information. The purpose of this is for you to understand the biblical perspectives on sin. So if at any point uh, I go through something too quickly, please stop, ask me to go back uh, and, and cover that again to make sure that you understand because if you don't understand, then we've both wasted our time, and I do not want to waste your time. You can waste my time. I don't care. That's fine. But I don't want to waste your time. So uh, please, 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 above all else, make sure that you can understand what we're doing, because if not, that would be, that would be sad. Uh, and then, yeah, I think, that, I think we're good. Okay, so here we go. So there are a couple of interesting things going on in Genesis where it's talking about humanity and setting up uh, the framework for everything that's going to be coming in the rest of the Bible, so everything after Genesis 2. Uh, first of all, there are two really specific commands that God gives to humanity. The first of them is to be fruitful and multiply, right? And that's in Genesis 1, and after God creates us in his image. And then the second one uh, comes in Genesis 2. It's after he creates the man and puts him in the garden. And then he, it says that he puts him there to till and keep the earth. And so, uh, again, what, what we hear in that is an echo of what we saw in Genesis 1, that uh, the first thing God does in Genesis 2 is plant a garden, and then he makes a man and puts the man in the garden and tells him to garden it. 
right? And so there's, there, are these, there are these two commands. Be fruitful and multiply. Make more of yourselves the way I've made you. And then there's garden the way I am gardening. Right? There's, this sort of, there's this sort of idea that to be in God's image is to do what God does. And the, the sort of divine partnership that's extended from God and then we, that we're invited into. Does that make sense? Okay, it's kind of a cool little thing. And, and these, are, these are actually how our dominion over the earth is exercised. Right? As we talked about that last week, that, that God gives us rule over the earth. The way, and we are expected to rule the way God rules. Okay? So... Uh, Here's where it gets really kind of interesting. Uh, the creation of the man and the woman uh, in Genesis 2 uh, has some interesting aspects. First of all, uh, it says that the man is created from the dust of the earth. And if you go back and read through Genesis 2 uh, later this week, you'll see that. It says that God formed him out. It's almost like the image of like a you know, kid playing with clay or something like that. He forms him out of the dust of the earth. And then he breathes into him. The breath of life. Now, the word in Hebrew is actually works in both Hebrew and Greek. The word breath is the same as the word for spirit. They're just, uh, there's no difference there. And so it's the, it, it's, it's the man is made out of the dust, but then he's also given the, the breath or the spirit of life. Okay, and it's breathed into his nostrils, and that's, that's actually what makes him alive. Does that make sense? Okay, now what's really cool then is this kind of framework that Genesis is setting up is that uh, the story that we talked about last week where God says, oh, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'm going to make a, an Azer Konegdo for him, right? That loyal opposition for him. And then it says, God forms all of the animals out of the dust of the earth, okay? So the same way that God made the man, God makes all of the animals with one notable exception. The animals do not receive the breath or the spirit of life, okay? So there's this interesting, uh, humanity occupies this interesting place, and it's actually the same thing in Genesis 1, but you have... God, who is spirit, and you have animals, which are dust, and you have humanity, which is both. So they're like this hybrid between heaven and earth. They're like this, you know, and, and again, in Genesis 1, that's the same kind of thing, right? They're, they're the last thing that's created, but they're also made in the image of God. So humanity is sort of at this, uh, I don't know exactly what you call it, but they're like that, the fulcrum between heaven and earth. They're the, the pyramid, they're the hybrid between those two uh, modes of existence. Does that make sense? Again, just kind of a cool picture that Genesis is doing that becomes important when we get into Genesis chapter 3. So um, in Genesis 3, actually, sorry, also the other thing we find out in Genesis 2, that in this garden there are these two particular trees. There's lots of trees, right? But there's two that are noteworthy. The first one is the tree of life. And the second one is the tree, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God tells the man... You are free to eat of any of the trees in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Okay, that's the command that God gives the man. So implicit in that command is the tree of life, right? We can eat of all of the trees, including this one, except for that one. Now, obviously, when we get into talking about what exactly sin is, this, the nature of this particular tree is going to end up being very important. But before we get there, we should acknowledge, and this is something that our particular theological tradition as, Wesleyan, as Wesleyans really overemphasizes, well, not overemphasizes, it strongly emphasizes, and that is that this story assumes that we have free will. And it assumes that this is a real choice that we're making. And uh, we'll, later as we go through this course, we'll be talking about how there are some denominations and some theological traditions that don't believe that we have free will Ours is not one of them. 
Okay, uh, in, in the Wesleyan strands of theology, we assume that humanity's wills are free, that our choices that we make are ours and that we bear the full responsibility for them. Okay, that, that, that no one dictated that this was the choice that I had to make. When, you know, when I chose to teach this class, that was a, a free choice I was making, not something that was determined before the creation of the world. That make sense? Yeah, that's, seems like a yeah, pretty straightforward idea. So, so what we want to know then... As we're, as we're moving into the story, as we're sort of letting the story of Genesis 1 through 3 shape our, under, our theological understanding of sin, is what in the world is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And I made it look really ugly and dead, but it probably wasn't. Like, it had fruit on it and stuff, and it apparently looked nice enough to eat. So I'm being a little bit disingenuous in my drawing, but you'll forgive me. Um, so first of all, uh, the, we need to talk about the name of the tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And... For me, for a long time, I really had a hard time wrapping my brain around what that could mean. Because to me, it sounded like before they ate of the tree of this fruit, or the fruit of this tree, the man and the woman didn't understand the difference between right and wrong. Right? Because they, they didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. I treated the word knowledge like an academic understanding, like, like there's a, a definition or a, you know, an, an idea of morality that wasn't in their head. And, and then when they ate the the tree, then all of a sudden they were like, oh no, this was wrong. Like, whoops. Right? Now the reason that was problematic for me was because it didn't, uh, using my reason to interact with scripture, was and I couldn't say this out loud because I didn't want to get struck by lightning, right? But I didn't understand how God could hold them accountable for making a decision that they didn't understand. Like, how was that really a sin? And in fact, even our, our uh, Nazarene manual that outlines doctrine, it talks about sin as a known transgression, uh, tra- uh, intentional transgression of a known law. So I was like, well, if, if all that this tree gave them was like an academic understanding of the difference between good and evil, the difference between right and wrong, was that really a sin? Like, were they actually transgressing? Or could, can you even transgress when something, when you don't understand the difference? Then I, you know, read some books because that's part of my job. And I had, uh, had an, I had someone point out to me a really interesting and totally true thing about the language that's used here. And probably many of you, particularly if you grew up in a church or have read much of the Bible, already know this too. And it was one of those like aha moments for me. Uh, in the Bible, the word to know that's used here, particularly in the Old Testament, doesn't mean academic knowledge. Okay, It means uh, an experiential knowledge. Okay, So... Uh, many of your English translations will say something like, Abraham knew his wife Sarah, and they conceived and had a son. Now, no doesn't mean, hi, I'm Abraham. Hi, I'm Sarah. Nice to meet you. Probably should have switched the voices. Sarah's probably wasn't deeper. Sorry. But um, to know in that particular context means have sex with, right? Which, is, which implies a deep, intimate knowledge, experiential knowledge of the other person. Not that Abraham wandered up and saw this woman, and then she, you know, walked away, and then later they did, you know, like, like to know implies this tangible, experiential engagement with whatever you're knowing or whomever you're knowing, okay? That's the sense that we should understand the name of this tree in, not the academic understanding of morality, right? Not like you didn't know that there were rules, and then you ate it, and now you know that there were rules, and surprise, you broke it, okay? But... The story, uh, it, when we understand the tree this way, right, it, the story lets us understand that Adam and Eve were created as adults 
and they had fully adult minds and they were able, just like we are all able, to understand that there are things that are good and things that are bad. Things that are good and things that are evil. Things that are healthy and things that are unhealthy. Things that are helpful and things that are hurtful, right? Things that are right and things that are wrong. They understood those things. They, they could have an academic understanding without having an experiential understanding of them, right? And so whatever, whatever's happening in the story that we're going to spend a few moments in, what they're gaining is an experiential understanding of good and evil. Okay, does that, that distinction at least make sense? We're, don't worry, we're going to keep moving through the story. Okay? Okay. So, the best way to think about the, the difference between these trees, and again, the tree, I should have backed up a little bit, I guess. The tree of life, we know from the end of this, the end of this particular story, confers immor- immortality. Okay, God, God even says it. He says, if they eat of this tree, they'll live forever. So we know we know what this one gives. Um, the bet, yeah. If the only trees you were allowed to eat was the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then up to that point they were allowed to eat of the tree of life. Yes. So they were immortal up to that point. Yeah, yeah. That's why God says, if you eat from this tree, you'll die. Oh my goodness! I never knew that before. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, so, so, so this is this. Beth raises a good question and a good point that we should make. God's intention for the man and the woman is immortality, right? Life. I mean, a simpler way to say that is life. God's God's plan. And and if you were here last week, we spent a lot of time looking at how there's a particular rhyme and reason to creation, right? The whole point of that first story there is that God has a an intentionally and carefully ordered the the house of His creation. To be lived in with humanity. And so we see here that, yeah, well, that's, that's the plan. God's design is life. Okay, that's that. But we have a choice. We get to choose. And, and this is actually getting to the heart of what, what this tree is all about. We get to choose if we're going to live in God's house on God's terms. Or if we, and the best way I can think of, I've, I've spent years trying to think of a good analogy for, for what this tree is offering us what we're choosing between. And the best way I can think of it is this tree is all about setting, setting the terms, deciding what is good and bad, deciding what leads to life and what leads to death, deciding, uh, in, in, a, in the metaphor we were using, deciding whose house it is, right? And so, um, beca- because that's, that's sort of getting at the, uh, at the idea of good and evil and playing with those things and deciding, no, uh, I know other people say this is bad, but I'm going to say it's good, and I'm going to say that these things are right. It's, it's, it's setting your own terms. Now, here's where, it gets, here's where it gets really interesting, okay? If you think about these two ideas, the idea of immortality and the idea of uh, sort of calling the shots or setting the rules, setting the terms that creation is going to function on, ordering creation so that it works, um, these are things that God has both of, right? God is both immortal and is the one calling the shots, right? That's, those are both things that are in the divine nature. Uh, animals, animals have neither of those two things, right? Animals don't live forever, and animals don't set any sort of moral agenda, right? What the story is implying here in Genesis 3 is that we have one of those things, which makes sense because we're a hybrid between heaven and earth, right? We're a hybrid between God and animal, between spirit and dust. And so we were created sort of like with the capacity for some aspect of divinity. 
And we could either have life or this sort of, uh, again, I, I always struggle with what exactly to call this, this sort of like self-determination or volition. But we can't have both of them because only God has both of them and we're the creature, not the created. And so God told the man early on, don't, don't choose this tree. If you do, you'll die. Because you're not created to have both of these things. You're created for one of these things. I think a point that I want to bring up that strengthens the position that they, pro they knew the difference between good and evil yeah. is that, I just looked up to make sure, um, when Adam and Eve finally had set, yes. they were 130. Okay. So there's a possibility that Adam and Eve could have walked the garden with God for close to 100 years. Sure. Day, daily communing with him. Right. Nothing else to do but talk to God and eat fruit. So they probably were very knowledgeable about Right. Yeah, and there's there's no need in the story to infantilize them, right? To assume that they were like somehow limited in their moral abilities. Because sometimes you think, oh, this is day eight. Right. And they just made a mistake, and now we're moving right. forward. No, but it's not. It could right. be, I mean, they don't say the actual year. Right. But it could be a hundred years right. that they've been walking and living in the garden. Yeah, absolutely. And that gives, I mean, that gives even uh, maybe a further air of tragedy to the story, right? So, uh, yeah, so very good. Okay, so, we good with this so far? So, so again, what we're seeing is that humanity occupies a particular place in God's creation. And just like there's an order for everything else, there's an order for humanity. And God's desire for us is that we would choose the order that includes life, but we do not choose that. And ch instead, we choose this quote-unquote knowledge of good and evil, which is essentially sort of deciding that we want to live in God's world on our terms instead of on God's terms. Deciding that, in fact, we would rather not consider it God's world. We'd rather consider it our world. And maybe even attempt to remake the world in our own image. Which is actually what you see a lot of people do when they get a little bit of power. Right? Is they decide, oh, I'm going to start calling the shots. And people that don't do things my way don't, you know, bad things. Depends on how much power they have, how bad the things get, usually. Everything makes sense so far? Okay. Um, all right, now the, the, the core issue at stake in Genesis 2 and 3 is the issue of idolatry. And this is, this is why I drew the tree ugly like I did and wrote all these words on it. Uh, idolatry, now, when we think of idolatry, we tend to think of like making little statues of things and like bowing down and worshiping them. And that's in the concept of idolatry, but, but really at its core, idolatry is putting anything else in the place of God. Okay, and so the question that confronts us when we, we try, to, try to explore idolatry is what's, what's at the center of my moral universe? You know, if you think of the image of a gravity well, right? Like, what's the thing in the middle that's pulling everything else in my life towards it? That's causing everything else to orbit around my life? What is that? What is that? And that could be, it could, could be anything, right? I mean, really, we, we know people, who, and we even use this language, though, right? We know people who worship all kinds of things in their life. People who have given all sorts of things that pride of place in the center of their lives that literally the rest of their life orbits around. What Genesis 
2 and 3 is saying is that that place belongs to God. That, that's, who, that's who goes there. That's who's, uh, if you remember, we used the, the throne metaphor last week, right? That's who, that's who ought to be on the throne of your life. If, it, if, if he's not, you will surely die. So when we're, when we're talking about uh, when we're talking about sin, this is really what we're talking about. So I want, I want you to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. I put them on your sheet, or you can listen along with me. Okay. Now, if you'll remember last week, we talked about the purpose of creation. And we said that, that God gave us a physical world. We use that, that quote from Psalms, right? That we would taste and see that the Lord is good. The purpose of the world and the purpose of our desires, our cravings for that world, is that our desires and our cravings would point us back to the giver of the gift. Right? That, that's why we have things. That's why food tastes good. That's why hugs feel wonderful. Right? That's, that's why we experience pleasure, so that we would look past the thing and back to the maker of the things. Okay? So let's look at, let's read Romans 1, 18 through 25, and look at what Paul does with this idea of our cravings and our desires and, and how it all really comes down to being about idolatry. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, God showed his anger against heaven. Uh, from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. We talked about that last week, right? That creation is God's temple and that God's divine attributes, God's divine self is knowable through creation. This is what Paul is saying here. But they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So... God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's, or degrading things with each other's bodies. Here's the, this is why I bolded this part. It's important. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Paul is really, right here, basically retelling the story of Genesis 3. That we traded the creator for the created. That we replaced God at the center of our universe with, I don't know, fill in the blank. All kinds of other stuff. Whatever, anything else. It doesn't matter what else replaces it there. But if it's not God, uh, then it's sin. And so this is why... uh, this, many, if many of you were here when we did this, the series on the seven deadly sins a couple of years ago. Uh, the seven deadly sins are not a biblical list of sin. This is actually something that was created by some of the early Christians as a guide to confession. Because they said, you know, sometimes you sit down and try to think about all the ways you've messed up. It's just like hard. You know, some of us mess up more than others, and so it's challenging. Uh, and so they created sort of like, you can think of it like a flow chart or a rubric to kind of help you systematically think through all of the different areas where we are tempted. And so it was the idea, so they used the tree metaphor because they said, you know, these things are all like branches that are just splintering off from a tree. And so whatever sin you have, you can always trace it back to where it came from. And that's what the, 
That's what the seven deadly sins are for. So, um, and, and they always put pride as the root sin. They said every other sin comes from thinking that someone or something else deserves God's place. That's pride, right? Thinking that my way is better. Thinking that what I think is better than what someone else thinks. That, I mean, that's, that's the, and, and they call that, the, that, that, that's the root of all other sin. Anything, any other sin that you can think of grows out of this first tendency that we have to replace God at the center of our lives. Does that make sense? Uh, in one of the books that I'm using heavily to, uh, to shape this class, there's a, a quote. The guy's name is Michael Lodal. He's a professor at one of our Nazarene universities. And he said, sin is a term that describes a life lived in idolatrous relations rather than turned outward towards God and neighbor in loving service. So again, what essentially is happening here is it's when we refuse to turn ourselves to God when we refuse to put the trinitarian self-giving God at the center of our lives doesn't matter what else is there we become idolatrous and that's what that's what bends our souls away from God and so I kind of I tried with my limited drawing skills to, to illustrate this as a path right there's two there are well there's two main paths that we can choose in life one of them is towards God and therefore towards life and the other one is away from God. And, and again, there's like a billion ways to walk away, just like there's a billion things that can be at the center of our life that aren't God. And it doesn't matter which of them you choose. They all lead to death. That's why there's, I mean, there's technically only two. It's like one and then a, everything else. And so uh, Martin Luther, one of uh, Protestant Reformation, 95 Theses Guide, he described he described sin as the soul curving away or curving in on itself, right? It, instead of being oriented towards God, it bends away. And so if you think of, uh, if you think of a, a channel for water, right? Every, like if you have a hose, wherever you point the hose, all of the water is going to go that way, right? And that's how, that's how our souls are. When our souls are oriented to, towards God, everything in our lives is going to flow towards God. But when we point ourselves away from God and again it doesn't matter where away from God because all of them are equally they all end the same way so I mean I guess it doesn't matter if you get there fast or slow you're still going there right any any everything in your life then becomes distorted and bent away from God that's what sin does to us a good metaphor I thought about was like maps and GPS's uh, have any of you ever used a GPS and it it, ha it has awful Software and so it takes you to the wrong place. <laughs> I, I actually have a different problem most of the time. Most of the time my maps are fine or my GPSs are fine. It's that I don't know where I'm going. And so I put in the wrong address. And my GPS works wonderfully well. There's nothing wrong with it. But I end up at the wrong place every time because I put in the wrong address. And that's sort of what this is talking about, right? Like if, if, you're, if your focus is wrong, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter how... It doesn't matter how good you are, right? It doesn't matter uh, how well you have your life together. Uh, if you're oriented in the wrong direction, if your soul's bent in the wrong direction, then you're not going anywhere healthy. And this, this language is important because I think often, both inside and outside the church, we just think of like sin is bad and God is good. And so if you're a Christian, you're good. And if you're not a Christian, you're bad. And that's, 
It's not a particularly helpful way to talk about sin because it's also not true. Like all of us know people who are not in the church. They would not consider themselves Christians, but they're actually pretty good people. And some of them, we don't like say it out loud, but some of them are nicer than some Christians that we know, right? They're better. We would say, look, objectively, they're better people. We would rather spend time with them than with our Christian friends sometimes or people that we know that are Christians that we don't want to call friends. And so when you reduce sin to just like this strict moral category of right things or wrong things, uh, you lose the ability to have a nuanced conversation about saying like, look, there's lots of, there's lots of good people who are headed in the wrong direction because they're bent away from God. And it doesn't mean they're bad. It doesn't mean that they're like with Hitler and the Joker and all those villains that we talked about at the beginning, right? You don't have to be. You don't have to be to be sinning. You don't have to be to be bent away from God. You don't have to be, you don't have to be that bad to be walking away from life and walking towards death. Uh, any, any geometry people in here? I know we have to have at least one or two, right? If you think about angles, right? Like, sure, you can be 180 degrees wrong, and then you're obviously going in the wrong direction, right? But if you're one degree off, you're still going to end up in the wrong place. Right? It might take longer. It might not be as apparent right away. But one degree still makes all of the difference between right on point and off course. And so this talking about sin this way helps us to have those more nuanced conversations. And it helps us to be more grace-filled. And it helps to remind us that it's not about whether we're right or wrong. It matters whether we're in God or not in God. Right? Yeah. I was thinking... What really undid them was not any of those sins up there, but curiosity. They, they, they were just curious, you know. They weren't greedy. They weren't gluttonous. They weren't angry. Mm-hmm. So is curiosity really a sin? Well. And then I thought, did, did that curiosity, was it going back to pride? Is curiosity a bad thing? It, well, it, curiosity does kill the cat, as we all know, right? <laughs> no, JR asks a good question. So JR says, you know, when, when in the story, it seems like curiosity was the real problem. I would actually qualify that and say, and again, I wish we had time to go through all of this, but when you read the conversation between the serpent and the woman, what really piques her interest is when the serpent says, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And that, that is... That is pride. The reason she eats the fruit is because she decides that she wants to be like God, knowing, having that intimate experience with good and evil. Now, the real tragedy of the story is that God also wanted the man and the woman to be like him, just in a very different way, right? What he wanted for them was to share his eternal life. And they had that opportunity. So they would have been like God, which is what she thought she wanted, right? So to quote Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, they chose poorly. Yes. <laughs> um, do you think that God did this this way because Satan dared him? As in the book of Job? Or here. Right. Here, I mean, 
Right. So the question is, the question is, did this come from you know a, a wager between God and Satan, similar to what we see in the Book of Job? Uh, one, I would say, maybe we don't know. Um, well, and here's what I I would say: if you're asking me my professional opinion, I would say no, uh, because I think, and we're actually going to talk about this in a few minutes when we get to the problem of evil, but. I think that free will and free choice is a good in and of itself. And when God, if God wanted to have a world filled with moral agents who were in a free, loving relationship with him that, that mirrors what we see inside of the Trinity, that required free will. Um, because as we, we all understand, there's a difference between a puppet and a person. Right? I mean, that's... Um, so I would say, I would say, sure, may, I mean... We can guess at what what sort of what the the conversations in the heavenly council might have looked like, you know, on this day, whether it was day eight or day hundred and eight, right? But I don't think it needed to be there. I think that I think that whether Satan ever put God up to anything like that, the, there were choices that were to be made, and they had to be choices that had real consequences, or they weren't real choices. We're going to get to that when we get to the problem of evil. <laughs> Which is tonight, I promise, if we get through everything. Okay. So that tree was put in there just for the purpose of free will. Uh, it was a part of the creation that God called very good. Which means this choice was something that God... The, the, uh, the, uh, a world where humans had this choice available to them was called very good. So it seems that this choice was part of the design for God's creation. And, and I would say that the reason for that is because if we, a, a crude but effective example would be if you have a kid and you have a $100 bill hidden on a shelf that they can't see and you don't tell them about it and you come home and you're like, good job not taking the $100 bill. What are you praising them for? They didn't know so it's not real, like they didn't, they didn't actually choose anything. It's not a real, it's not an actually praiseworthy act. Because there was no... Choice if you're choosing between good and good. Right. Or if, you're not, or if you don't even know there's a choice at stake. Which, again, back to like, that's why that's not an academic knowledge of good and evil. Because how can they be held accountable for a choice that they didn't understand? Right? If you tell, you know, if your kid knows there's a $100 bill on the shelf and they, you come home and they left it where it is, either they were fearful of your wrath or they made a morally good choice. But... The, um, again, giving them the benefit of the doubt and assuming they're good kids, then that is a praiseworthy act. Right? And you can say, you had a choice to go against my will and you chose not to. Good, like good, very good, good job, I thank, thank you. you know, and that, again, in the best case scenario, that's done out of love, not out of fear, you know, because they respect you and, and all of that. So, uh, so all of that to say, yeah, I, that's, I, the morally free universe, I think, is, fu- is fundamentally good. Because if we're not morally free, then we're not actually free to participate in the interior life of the Trinity. We're not actually free to give ourselves and to receive ourselves in love. Make sense? Adam and Eve could have lived in that garden and been obedient their whole life. And they may have been one of their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, sure. whatever they ate from that. Sure. Well, and okay, so Faith brings up a thing that I was wanting to get to anyway. So here's, here's, where, here's the danger of these stories, okay? Because they're short, and they don't give us very much information, and so we want to start, start running on the, the speculation trail, right? Sort of like, where did Cain's wife come from? We don't know. 
Okay, who is he afraid of? We don't know, and and we can speculate, we can guess, and that's all. That's great. Look, I love doing that kind of stuff. When we want to go out and get coffee and make up stories that we should add in the Old Testament, I'm gonna do it. I'm game. We can write books and make a million dollars. Okay, <laughs> but remember that the point of these stories is not to entertain us academically. The point of that, that that's a nice fringe benefit of them. Okay, it's it's fine, but the point of these stories is to form us spiritually, and so what's What's more important than that this story has happened is that it happens now. That we can see ourselves in those choices and say, I am the man, I am the woman, and I have the choice to leave God at the center of my life or to replace God at the center of my life. Right? I make that choice today. And that, for our purposes, is really what's the most important thing when we read this story as Scripture. And not just as a, a fun story. Right? Is that, is, is how, is it, how is it challenging me? How is it wanting to form me today? How am I seeing myself reflected in this story? How is the story making me reflect on my own priorities? On how I'm ordering my own life? Have I ever stopped to ask what's at the center? What's pulling everything else towards it? What is my life orbiting around? Is it God? Because usually it's not. We are easily distracted. And it's not, it's not like bad stuff. Right? I don't even know if this is where I'm supposed to talk about this, right? But the, the problem is, like, like, there are so few people in the world that, that worship evil things, right? And we call most of them psychopaths or sociopaths, and we lock them up, right? Most of us are idolaters, not of bad things, but of good things. Like spouses or children or jobs or something like that. Something that should be a part of a good, well-ordered life. But instead of it being a part, instead of it being a creature in God's creation, we make it the whole show. We put it in the center of our lives, and everything else, including God, we expect to revolve around it. And that's when we become idolaters. And that's much harder than saying, like, well, I didn't kill anyone, so I guess I'm okay. Right? It's much harder than saying, like, well, I didn't do anything bad today. Because sin isn't always doing bad things. It, it is doing bad things. But it's not just doing bad things. It's also having a, a, a misordered life. It's making choices that a lot of people would look at and say, man, good job. Because they have messed up priorities, too. It can be sacrificing your health or your family or your a job on the altar of something else that's not God. And this is where it gets crazy. This is where it gets tricky because it's not you can't just like make a checklist for this, right? This is a this is a constant examination that you do that you do with people that you love and that you know that love you and who are willing to hold you accountable to say what is at the center of your life and how do you how do you even make that decision because sometimes it's really tricky to know for sure. And this is why sin is so insidious. Because it's not always easy to tell. If it were, well, we'd probably be a lot easier, you know, we'd all be a lot better off. This is what, this is what midlife crises come from, right? People wake up one day and go, oh my gosh, I've been giving a life to all the wrong things. A sports car will fix it. Right? This is what the, this is what that comes from is 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 failing to have ordered your life well and and again sometimes we have the grace to wake up and realize it. So this is what this story is asking us to consider, right? 
is where, where do we make those choices? And it's something we do every day. We make choices all day long. Okay, good. I want to talk about original sin. Woo! So what we're really asking is how do we understand this corruption of our nature? How do we understand this bending of our souls away from God and towards whatever else? Okay? There's two guys I want to introduce you to. You've maybe heard of at least one of them. This is Augustine or Augustine. I, I don't know the dude, so I don't know what he preferred to be called. Uh, you can say it probably either way. Um, and then he had a frenemy named Pelagius. These guys are both in the 300s, uh, both of them in the Christian church. And they are the two who sort of set the framework for the discussion about original sin. And this is actually one of the first divisions in the church where uh, some of the Christians who are alive today side of one, some side of the other. Uh, the Catholics and everyone who came from their family tree, which would include us as Protestants, as Wesleyans, as Wesleyan holiness, uh, really tend to be on Augustine's team. And our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, which would be like the Greek and Russian and Coptic and all those people with uh, like the, the Greek Orthodox churches, the Greek festival here and all them, they tend to be on Pelagius's team. Okay, uh, again, we'll do that more on the last week when we do the family tree and all of that. But the problem is, as with most discussions that get polarized, uh, both of them really ended up overstating their cases as a reaction to the other one. And so the, the real healthy middle ground is in the middle. Okay. What Augustine ended up, his position was sort of, and this is what a lot of you will be familiar with again, because we kind of come from his tradition is that humans, he didn't use, he didn't use the term genetic, but it's that humans are born guilty of sin. Okay. When you're, when you, because Adam and Eve sinned, when you're born, you're born guilty, already guilty. Okay. You've already sinned by virtue of being born human. By being born of, as a descendant of Adam. Uh, this is act, Augustine's the one who really pioneered and encouraged the pro- practice of infant baptism. Up until Augustine, most people waited to be baptized until the very end of their life because they wanted like as few other opportunities to sin as possible, so they'd like get baptized on their deathbeds and stuff. And Augustine was like, "Hey, if we're all born sinful, we need to back that baptism truck way up to the beginning." Because again, this is in a world where infant mortality is hovering around fifty percent, right? You got to get those kids baptized. Uh, so that if they die, they're okay. Thanks, so go to heaven. Because if you're born a sinner, bad news. Pelagius was on the far other extreme. He said, no, 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 no. Basically, everyone's born as a blank slate. Okay? Like, like you're born free. You have totally a free will. Your conscience is totally clean. And then everyone chooses to sin. Okay? So... Obviously, you can imagine the problems with both positions. Uh, the problem with Augustine's position is it ended up, this is, this is where the idea of like a strict predestination came from, the idea that God chose some to be saved and others not to be saved came from. Because if we're all completely sinners and we, there's nothing that we can ever do in our lives that God approves of and all of that, then the fact that some people find God must mean that God just chooses some people and not, not other people. Okay, that, that all kind of came from his position. Pelagius, on the other hand, had a really hard time taking the scripture seriously to talk about everyone sinning, right? Because if, if you have to imagine, like in a world of like billions of people, if everyone's born with a blank slate, you'd think some of them would manage not to mess it up, right? I mean, just like stats, right? And so, again, like I said, the, the, the best 
position, as usually is in very polarized debates, is somewhere in the middle. And this is why I drew a football stadium. I don't know if you could tell what that is or not, but that's what it's supposed to be. I even tried to draw a football on it. So uh, uh, sports will really hopefully help this analogy to talk about how, how, can we, how can we meaningfully talk about original sin in a way that's faithful to the scriptures and also helpful uh, in our own lives. So I assume there's a few of us. How many in here are Buckeye fans? Okay, now how many of you would say you're a crazy Buckeye fan? I know, right? Yeah. That was where I was going with this, right? Okay. Anyone been to an Ohio State game, even if you're not a Buckeye fan? A few of you? Then you'll know this. Does every, is everyone in here acquainted with the lunacy of Buckeyes fans? Okay, we all are? Okay. So my question, just picture that family then. If it's your family, you don't have to say it out loud. But just picture that family that, like, everything is Ohio State. They eat, sleep, and breathe Ohio State football, right? Imagine then that family has a child coming into the world. Okay, so the, the wife is pregnant and they're going to be having a child soon. My question to you is, when does that child become a Buckeye? At conception. <laughs> yeah, at conception, right? Yeah. They, before the child is born, their, their nursery is already decorated in Ohio State colors, right? They already have an entire three-year supply of Ohio State onesies, right, and footy pajamas and all of that, and they're probably already pre-enrolled at the college uh, for when they graduate from high school. Right? I mean, this is, right, we know these kinds of crazy football fans, right? Uh, this is sort of how we could think, believe it or not, of the concept of original sin. Okay? Technically, eh, technically that baby is born with a blank football slate. Right? I mean, technically, technically they have free will. Right? If you... This is really... It got really dark. I didn't intend this. If you just, like, stole the baby and took it to London or something like that, <laughs> it probably wouldn't grow up to be a Buckeye. Right? I mean, that, again, that got dark. But... Um, Technically, technically, he has a, a blank slate, but is there, is there any way that that kid's not going to grow up with a deep, intimate, experiential knowledge of Ohio State football? Like, no, it's not possible, right? Um, because from the moment, like as you said, the moment the child is conceived, he's being bathed in an atmosphere of Buckeyes, it's in the genes, right? Yeah, I mean, it might as well be, right? I, it, right. And, and the, this is where the metaphor breaks down, because we all know kids who either grow up and don't end up liking football, or they are rebellious and they like some other team, hopefully not Michigan, but maybe, you know. Um, but this is where, that's where the, the analogy breaks down a little bit. But, but this is what, this, when we're talking about sin, this is what we mean. There's no meaningful way to talk about any of us being born with a blank slate when it comes to sin. Because even if we were, even if you allow it for the sake of argument, the moment the child enters the world, they are surrounded by sin. It's just, and they can't get away from it. It's everywhere. And, and, and it begins forming us the moment, again, probably the moment we're conceived, not just the moment we're born. And so, um, you know, Pelagius a bit overstated his case when he said, well, everyone's born with a blank slate. We're like, I mean, yeah. Maybe, but like, there's no not not in any real meaningful way. You can't be not in our world. Every, every because because it's a fallen world. Because everything is broken by sin. There's no there's no real way to talk about that. Um, again, but what we don't go all the way to say in Augustine's nature is that you're already you're already guilty of sin. You've already committed sin uh, the moment you're born. Doesn't matter one way or the other. 
Good question. So Jesse wants to know, does it matter one way or the other? Uh, for me, I think there's a lot that hinges on it. Uh, first of all, when we get to talking about Jesus in a few weeks, one of the things we confess about Jesus is that Jesus was born fully human. And if you say that to be fully human is to be born guilty of sin, you run into some big problems right off the bat. Uh, because Jesus knew no sin. If you say that, well, Jesus was an s- exception, or like like plead special pleading or something like that, then you run into the problem of, well, one, that's not what the scriptures say. And two, uh, then how, how is our redemption meaningful in any way? Um, and there's like a weird genetic argument where they say he was born of the Virgin Mary, and that means somehow he didn't, I guess, sins in the Y chromosome or something like that. I don't, I don't really follow that argument. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's also just not anywhere in the scriptures. That's not why the scriptures included the, the virgin birth stories. It wasn't to make comment on Jesus' theological purity or, or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I think there's a place that it matters. I think it also... Um, it also matters in how we view ourselves. And we're going to talk about this when we get to the end, but there's something, there's something that we, we say uh, that we shouldn't be saying, and that is like, well, I'm only human, which, which means, well, I messed up. What do you expect? Because to err is human. We even say that. We have the same, right? And what we've seen already in here uh, throughout this, this course is no, like actually to be human is to be created in the image of God. And sin is a deviation from what it means to be human, not, uh, not a, uh, an acceptance of what it means to be human. So uh, I think when we allow sin to be woven into our DNA, uh, I think that takes us down that path. Um, and, and I don't, like, I just don't see it in the scriptures. So uh, I, think, I, think we, I think we're better to talk about it. Maybe, maybe Buckeye isn't a good analogy. Maybe it's more like a Cleveland Browns fan. Like, you don't realize how lost you are? You, you are convinced that this will be your year? Yeah. And everyone else around you can see that you're hopeless. But it just takes, it takes a special act of grace for you to be able to see that in your own soul. Right? So maybe it's, maybe it's more like being any Browns fan. I apologize. That was, that was below the belt. Um, okay. Is this clear-ish? Okay. Uh, I want to talk how much time? No, no, no. no okay. I just, not, I just don't understand how that works in the middle. How does that, how is that in the middle of the sin nature and the free nature? Because we're not born already guilty of sin, but we're also not born with completely blank slates. I, I still don't understand. Okay, we're born innocent, but we're corrupted from the moment of birth by the atmosphere of sin but that's not what we've been taught all our lives we've been taught original sin is inherent within us but isn't that like a, like in our dna isn't that the purpose of the age of accountability well yeah and see here's uh, faith raises a good point the question is uh most most evangelicals that i know do not believe that babies are born already guilty of sin if we did, we would all do infant baptism. And we don't. And so, yeah, we, we, we have this other thing that's also not in the scriptures called an age of accountability, which is a teaching that at some point, children transition from being non-moral agents to un- being able to comprehend the difference between right and wrong. And then at that point, which is usually we say it's different for everyone. Right. That's where they make the choice. Right. That's where, that's where they become sinners. 
Uh-huh. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. they're fighting. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're already mm -hmm. for their war. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm more to think that we are sinners from, you know, inherited by just from that. You know. Again, the biggest problem with that is that you cut Jesus out of the equation. You either have to say that Jesus is born sinful, which we can't say. Right. Or you have to say that there's something else going on. Um, and again, there's... The, the, reason that, the reason this works is because I think it allows us to hold on to this idea of an age of moral accountability... There's a, there's a time when we start making choices for ourselves and we didn't before, and they are moral choices. Like, all of a sudden, we understand that, like, it doesn't matter whether I want that thing or not. If I take it, it's going to hurt someone else, and so that's, like, that's objectively bad. You know, there's, like, a trouble. And then, then I decide I take it and hurt them or I don't and help them, but at any the point, I'm making a moral choice. Well, not well, not just a selfish choice. Right, 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 right. Um, but if, if you let that if you let that be there if you let the idea happen that there is an age at which we start making moral choices and therefore are accountable for those moral choices let's 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 be really generous and say that's like four i've heard a lot of people say it's like 12 or something you know whatever and i'm not a child psychologist so i'm gonna say four fine we can say three we'll back it all the way up to three all right then you already have three years of being dressed in a onesie of the ohio state buckeyes or the cleveland Browns, or i mean you know what you've already had three like, literally all of your life that you have had experiences, you're already in that formative atmosphere that's bending you away from God. And so by the time you're making moral choices, you're already, I don't want to say, I mean, yeah, hopeless. I mean, that's, so, so when Paul makes a statement like, everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God, no one's like, really? Everyone? We're like, well, yeah. That matches my experience. It makes sense. Right? It, it fits our quadrilateral. I, I, is this the same argument? Because maybe this is where there's a disconnect. This is not, we're not saying we're born with a bent towards evil or a bent towards good. Yes? Is this the same thing that we're saying? Because to me, I feel like being born, okay, so being born as a blank slate, mm -hmm. like being born into a sexual world, mm -hmm. is not the same as saying, like, I'm, I'm going to kick my twin because I all I know is an Mm -hmm. But I'm not yet understanding. You're not that. making moral choices, right. yeah. So, so we have this bent towards me, selfish. Mm -hmm. You know, there's two, there's two ways to go, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean necessarily yet that we understand that we're going the wrong way. Right, but but be, because none of us is an island, because we all grow up influenced by everyone around us. Everyone does. And that means we're all being formed by other people who are already bent away from God. I mean, the only two people who ever had a free moral choice were Adam and Eve, right? And, and so I was actually, we're going to move into and try to real quickly hit Genesis 4, which is Cain and Abel, their two children. And you see right away, these two are being formed in a way that's bending away from God. So that when Cain has an important decision to make, he also chooses sin. And, and the bottom line is that by today, I mean, our world is so fallen, so broken, that, you know, we're all bent away from God. And back to our earlier discussion, it doesn't matter if it's by one degree or 70 degrees or 180 degrees, off is off. 
bent is bent. And eventually, well, you know, one degree, it might, it might take longer for that destruction to manifest than if you're, you know, but it, you know, dead is dead, bent is bent, that's it. Like, and that's, that's the human condition. There's no way we can comprehend the paradise of Eden because we've never experienced it. Right. Right. We, we were born, e- even if, you know, grant the argument, even if we were born as blank slates, morally neutral, even if we were, which is, again, fairly debatable, even if we were, it doesn't matter. And so where, what, what's less, again, what's less important than how we get there is where we get to, which is the scriptural affirmation that everyone, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God. Right? And that sin leads to death. So therefore, everyone, everyone is heading towards death. Everyone is bent away from life, bent away from God, and bent towards death. We're only in chapter 3, so there's lots of time to fix it. But that's the, that's the stage that's been set. Right? I know it's kind of bleak. I warned you last week. It's going to be a good upper week. Okay, we're going to try to move through this next piece real quickly, which is doubtful. But... <laughs> I want to ask, since we only have 20 minutes left, uh, let's talk about the problem of evil. So that word there in your notes is theodicy. It is the fancy theological term for the problem of evil, which is essentially like, why didn't God stop this? And we've already been hitting on this, right? Why did God even make the dumb tree in the first place? Particularly if God had foreknowledge that it was going to happen. You know, why? Why do it? What's the point? Uh, so, in order to do that, let's read the next story after uh, the fall in Genesis 3. This is in Genesis 4. It said, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife. The actual Hebrew there is Adam knew his wife. So we get that fun experiential word again. His wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best of his firstborn lambs of his flock. The Lord accepted Abel's gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. The bold part, obviously, I highlighted for emphasis. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and master it. So one day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Uh, I heard a rabbi pose the question this way. Where was God when Abel wiped out a fourth of humanity? (laughs) Now, first of all, we should observe that this story makes the stakes that were established in Genesis 1 real. Humanity was given dominion over the world. And what that means is that our actions have real consequences. They do. They have real consequences. God did not put us in a toddler kitchen that's not connected to any electricity, that has all plastic utensils so that we can play act at being an adult. He put us in a real kitchen with a real stove and we can really burn the house down. Okay? That, we have dominion. And I can't think of a better illustration of that 
than this. We are capable of taking life. There are real stakes and real consequences. And this is the price of free will. This is why I said that this is why I said that, that tree was necessary. We either have free will or we don't. Right? We our actions either have consequences or we don't. We're either God's partners or God's puppets. And this story shows we're not puppets. God gives us a beautiful gift in freedom and the ability to act on the world and impact it in real, meaningful, significant ways. And that means that we can abuse that gift. Uh, This story also affirms the uh, Cain's free will and the momentum of sin, if you want to use that analogy, right? Um, God tells Cain that he can choose... Not to, kill, not to kill his brother, right? He warns him. And wouldn't this be nice if every time you were about to sin, God showed up and was like, are you sure that you want to do this? <laughs> right? Cain got that. God showed up and was like, hey, man, maybe you shouldn't do this. Sin is crouching at your door, and you need to master it. The obvious way to do it is that you're mad at them. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, again, unless we think that we're just all that different from Cain. And we could, we could spend weeks in this story. There's so much more in here. But the important thing uh, for our purposes tonight is that not only do we see that Cain has the free will to exercise a free choice, but also he's caught up in the momentum of sin, right? The thing that started in the garden with his parents is escalating. So you can imagine today, and this is why I asked earlier if any of you have been in a, in a in like one of the, those packed out stadiums, right? If we want to return to that stadium analogy, it's like not only are we born into the family and born into the fandom, but now we're at the game, right? And it's noisy with sin. It's everyone's cheering and and it's, if you, again, if you've ever been to one of those games, like it's actually, you can't really have a meaningful conversation with the person next to you because everyone, Right? And so it tends to drown out the still small voice of God that's whispering in our ear like a lover calling us and inviting us to life. And it's not that God isn't there, we see in the story of Cain and Abel. The God is there. But because we have free will, because we were given a world where our actions have real meaningful consequences, God is not going to force or cajole us to follow the path to life. We have to choose it because that's the only way, that's the only meaningful sense of which that is a real choice. And so God is always there whispering to us, calling to us, you know, inviting us out of the path that leads to death and into the path that leads to life. We're going to talk more about that when we get to Jesus, obviously. But we, many, many times, cannot hear that because sin, the, the, the world of sin, the culture of sin is drowning out the voice of God. It's hard to see. And, and the longer we head down those paths, the further we get you know, from life, the harder and harder and harder it is to discern what that path back to life looks like, to hear the voice of God, whatever, you know, whatever analogy you want to use. That's what sin does to us. Okay, I also want to observe with that nice Flip Wilson quote that's on your page. The devil made me do it. We could not have any discussion of sin without commenting on the devil. In the Cain and Abel story, we get our first hints that there are some aspects of sin 
that are external even to us because God describes sin as a beast that is crouching outside of Cain's door. It's really scary, hostile imagery. Right? And the scriptures affirm that the world, our world, is filled with powers, with entities that are not human. And usually it calls them them all kinds of things, right? We've talked about some of them. Angels, demons. In the New Testament, they're often called powers and principalities. And it's clear that while God created all of them, like us, not all of them choose to serve God. And unfortunately, that is about as much as that is clear about them. Okay? We don't get an origin story for these things. There's lots of them that Christians like to make up and tell each other, right? We don't know that they're all fallen angels. We don't know that they're uh, departed spirits of dead people. I mean, again, you've probably all heard all of these different stories about where all of these things came from. But the scriptures, when you really sit down and walk through them carefully and methodically, don't give us the origin story that we want. Not like we get for us. Right? Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, but wait a second. What about that one place in the Bible where it talks about the devil being the angel of light who rebels against God and gets thrown out of heaven? Right? Okay. I'm going to shock you a little bit, but that story is not actually in the Bible anywhere. I know that because in college, I was like, I want to write a paper on that story. And I went looking for it. And I was like, wait a second. Where is it? It's not in there. Uh, A guy named Origen, who was a a church father who lived in like the 200s, put it together from about three different stories in the scriptures. Uh, One place in Isaiah and one place in Ezekiel and one place in Revelation. And he pulled them all together and he said, he kind of put it together. But when you go, and if you you want to know more about this, stick with me after class and I can walk through it with you. Because it's pretty creative, but actually not in the Bible. So what the scriptures do affirm about the devil, also called Satan, and these are actually titles, right? Satan means accuser, devil means liar or deceiver. So they're not like proper names as much as they are like descriptions of the things that this thing, this entity, this person, him that he does. But he is, uh, he, seems to, he seems to lead the opposition against God. And the main way that he does that is by enticing humanity to turn against God. Right? That's why he's called the deceiver in the New Testament. It's because he's lying to us. He's convincing us that the ways of God are not the ways to life. That the ways of, again, fill in the blank, anything else. It doesn't actually matter as long as you're not following God. You can do whatever you want. So does he think his way is better? This is where, this is where, uh, what, what it seems like he thinks is that he really hates God a lot. And so uh, I don't think that he thinks like, hey, come follow me because my way's better. I think he's like, if I hurt you, it'll hurt him. Because he can't, do anything, he can't do anything to God. And this is actually, Revelation 12 is where you really get a lot of this particular part of the story of the devil. Um, it's clear that after the resurrection of Jesus, the war for heaven is finished. The powers of, we're going to talk about a lot more about this in the week about Jesus, but the powers have been defeated. Satan has been cast down. It's over into the story. And so 
in Revelation 12, Satan turns to himself and says, well, if I can't take on God, I can sure take on the people of God. And so then he turns his attention to the church and decides if he's going down, he's going to take as many of us with him as possible. And he does that by deceiving, by convincing us that our priorities lie elsewhere, that there are things other than God that are worthy of our allegiance. And it's all, at least from what it looks like in the scriptures, it's all primarily motivated by hate, by hatred of, by hatred of God, and by a desire to hurt God. So, so again, the, the, the bottom line there is, and, and, and for when we, when we talk about these powers and principalities, you see these at work in the New Testament. Um, what, what is important is that oftentimes we think that the story of the scriptures is God versus the devil. But really in the scriptures, and I'm telling you, go, go you know, use, use the internet, look up all the times that devil or Satan or whatever appears in the Bible. And what you'll see is that actually, for God, the devil is not a big deal. He's got it handled. Not a problem. Not a threat. Right? The, the story of the scriptures is God versus humanity, or actually, better said, God rescuing us from ourselves, right? Because it all goes back to God created us for life with him. We made a really bad decision, and we continue to make really bad decisions. And these powers and principalities, they're capitalizing on that, and they're using our uh, deceived natures are bent away from God. They're using that to hurt God. But ultimately what God cares about is, is us and rescuing us from death, from the death that we choose for ourselves. When we were given a clear choice and when we are given clear choices like Cain, we choose harm and we choose death instead of life. Okay. I want to, oh gosh, we have so little time left. Okay, I want to do real quickly, I want to do what does sin do to us, uh, and then that'll have to be it. Okay, so what does sin do? First of all, it disrupts the house of creation, the temple of creation that we looked at last week. It interrupts God's shalom, it disorders everything. Second of all, sin touches every aspect of our lives. And I put Genesis 3 in there. This is where God is meeting out the punishments. A couple of things that I really want to work you will have to read it later on your own time. But there's something that's fascinating about what happens here is that humanity was given two commandments by God in the beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, and till and keep the ground. And their two punishments are that now your childbirth, which is how we're fruitful and multiply, is painful. And when you try to till and keep the ground, you're going to get thorns and thistles. So what we're seeing is that when we are bent away from God, it disrupts. And all of the things that are meant to bring us joy instead of bringing us pain. Now, instead of being partners with God, we're set against God. And that, that begins in our souls and it works its way outward into the rest of our lives. Okay? It, it, it gets into our social relationships. This is the first time you see an inequality or a hierarchy. Is all of a sudden God says to the woman, your desire will be for the man, but he's going to rule over you. Instead of you both exercising dominion together, now all of a sudden there's going to be power struggles. There's going to be hierarchies in human relationships. Um, 
Then there's institutional sin, and I want to read Ephesians 6, 10 10 through 12 with you because you get a sense of what these powers and principalities are. Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. There you see he's leading the charge against God and against us, right? For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You know how when you go to a football game at a big, loud, crazy stadium full of all those crazy fans, like you know... That like all this is is a bunch of people that have had a little bit too much caffeine and are just screaming real loud, but it sure doesn't feel like that. Like it feels like there's just like this bigger something that's going on there, and that's actually why when it's your team that you're there to root for, that's why it's fun. Is because it just feels like it's bigger than everyone else. This is what we talk about when we talk about institutions. So when we're talking about things like the institutional evils of slavery or of discrimination or of things like that, the New Testament gives us space to say, you know what? In addition to the fact that these institutions are made up of people, there also are times that when enough people get together and there's enough bent away from God, there's enough dysfunction, we can begin to talk meaningfully about how some of these powers and principalities are actually inhabiting these institutions. And it's, it's actually more sometimes than just a group of people. But at some point, our, our institutions can themselves become fallen and evil, and they can be used by these powers to do massive 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 damage to god's creation and to god's people so we experience that and then finally um there are the natural evils which again is a part of these powers that rage against god so when we talk about earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes and all of these kinds of things romans 8 talks about the creation groaning for redemption and understanding that when adam was punished god said the ground is now cursed because of you and so uh, creation itself actually bears the wounds of our sin. And when, again, when we talk about some of these natural disasters and people wonder how can these things happen, like we can say, well, this is actually still in some cases consequences for some of our original sins. And in fact, I think a, there was actually an atheist who defended God after Katrina and everyone was saying it was God's judgment on the city of New Orleans and all of that kind of stuff. The, an atheist said, don't blame God for Katrina Blame the hubris of people who thought that they could build a city on the coast below sea level and then escape the disaster that was inevitable. Okay? Remaking coastlines and putting cities in those kinds of places can be considered an act of, you know, playing God. Thinking that we can arrange the world and do the world better. And so maybe God sent a hurricane or maybe this is, again, consequences of our own um, and, if, and if you know anything about the corruption and stuff in the government of New Orleans, there's, there's probably all of these levels of evil that were involved in Katrina. And so uh, we can talk about that. Okay, and just a couple of moments that are left. I'm apologizing we have to rush through all of this. I want to talk about what sin and what it is, what it is and what it is not. Um, first of all, sin, we, we would do well not to think of sin primarily as individual things that I did wrong. Growing up, uh, I and maybe you're just getting the benefit of my baggage at this point. Uh, growing up, I always, every time I did something wrong, it was like there was a heavenly chalkboard and God was making another mark on it. And then like Jesus was suffering extra more on the cross because of like every time I fought with my siblings or something like that. Created a lot, did like a lot of guilt and kind of bad stuff in there for that. Um, the scripture's primary concern is not like balancing some sort of cosmic scale or dealing with my personal slate. It's with the restoration of God's shalom that we talked about last week. 
And again, my individual choices are going to steer me one way or another, right? I'm either going to be following God or not following God. And so my, my choices have real consequences. And I ought to be taking my personal sin seriously, right? But God's main objective is the restoration of creation and life with humanity, right? Not, again, not just some sort of moral, arbitrary moral scale. Second of all, we already talked about this. We cannot think of sin as something that is natural to the human condition. We should never say, well, I'm only human. Because I'm not, I am only human. But only human means created in the image of God. And sin is not making me more human, it's making me less human. Right? God, God did not create me to be a sinner. God created me to bear his image. Uh, three, we should not talk about, we should not say the devil made me do it. The devil does not make us do anything. He entices us, sure. Right? He can deceive us, but I did it. I made a moral choice. I'm a moral agent. And then a couple of last thoughts. Um, first of all, we should, we should distinguish between desire and sin. Just wanting something does not automatically make it sinful. Um, in fact, as we saw last week, our, our desires are part of the good creation. When our body craves things, that's, it was made to crave things. And so that doesn't mean they can't be misaligned. That doesn't mean we can't train our bodies to want the wrong kinds of things. But desire in and of itself is not sinful. Okay? And then finally, sin isn't just the social taboo. Right? It doesn't just mean that, well, some cultures think that, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, some, cultures, some cultures think that some words are bad and some cultures don't. Like, there was a day and age when the word crap was, like, the worst thing you could say. And now today it's like, eh, you know, you Older people are still like, oh, I shouldn't say that word. And younger people are like, what word is? I don't like, what word are you mad about? You know, so language is kind of fluid like that. And it's tempting for some people to say like, well, you know, sin is, it's all just kind of relative. And there's just some, you know, it's, it's just kind of like a, whatever society deems as sinful. Like, again, there are things that lead to shalom and there are things that don't. Right. And, and there are, there's a, there is a moral universe, and there's a particular way that God created the world to be ordered, and we are choosing whether we are aligning with that order or not. Okay, we are out of time. Let me pray for us and, and then dismiss us, and then if you want to stick around, I don't have anywhere to go right away, so I'm sure that some of you still have some questions and stuff, and we'll try to do better getting through everything next time. So let's pray together. God, we are grateful, as always, for the chance that we have to meet and to, to think deeply about you and to train ourselves uh, better to see the world with a theological lens. Uh, this is a particularly difficult subject, partly because no one likes to talk about stuff that is uh, bad or that is ugly, and that's exactly what sin is. Uh, help us to see that you gave us a good gift when you created us free. But what comes with that gift is a heavy responsibility because that means our actions have consequences and that every day we are either choosing death or life. Uh, we thank you that where we ended tonight is not where your story ends and that you did not leave us in despair and that you did not leave us hopelessly bent away from you, but you provided a way for us to cross back over from death into life and to experience the power of your resurrection. So we ask as we leave this week, that you would help us to be more mindful of the choices that we make and the consequences that they have, and that you would help us to consider honestly and truthfully 
whether or not you are at the center of our lives because we know that that is the path that leads to life and that everything else leads to death and we want to be a people who are your people who faithfully bear your image and who live with you and so we offer these prayers humbly and in the name of your son jesus thank you everyone remember next week you're going to have a chance to go to alpha so definitely try to be here for that and uh, i'll be back and well i'll be here sunday so i'll see you all on sunday but Uh, We'll be back in two weeks to talk about the rest of the Old Testament. So see you all next week.